Welcome to another Christian Education National Podcast. Another episode where we bring you the audio of a presentation that has and hopefully will continue to encourage Christian educators. May it be an encouragement to you and your work for His Kingdom. So uh, what I'm going to do in this hour is talk about <coughs> a project that we've been working on for some years at the Kaiser Institute where I work uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that's going to become public uh, later this year. And it's around um, problems around school assessment. I, I'm not sure exactly what the climate's like in Australia right now, but it's getting pretty fierce in North America in terms of, you know, if it moves and breathes, it has to be killed stone dead and turned into a number. And um, so schools are increasingly working in an educational culture that, for good reasons and bad reasons, is pretty obsessed with measuring things and um, and assessing whether what we claim is happening is happening. Uh, now, that can be a good thing because uh, Christian schools, as we've already been suggesting this morning, are not immune to the phenomenon of claiming to be doing all kinds of wonderful things but not having any evidence that they're actually happening. Uh, so it's not a bad pressure to have to try to figure out whether we can demonstrate that some of the dreams that we write about in our brochures uh, might actually be occurring on average uh, in our students. But then we start to run into a bit of a conundrum. And what I'm seeing in, in schools in North America is um, part of the problem is that a lot of our assessment culture is very quantification-based. And when you start trying to assess things that are important to the Christian school, you start to sense this lack of fit. So, um, you know, it would be nice that we, we could demonstrate that two-thirds of our students are 73% humble by the time they graduate. Um, <laughs> But it just seems a little difficult to tie down some of these more nebulous goals that we've got that nevertheless feel like the really important goals, right? This is the stuff that's core to what Christian schools are for. Like, if Christian schools were just about getting better math scores, then you don't need them. You just, you just build a school that gets better, better math scores. Uh, you know, Christian schools have got this other mission that's to do with formation, spiritual formation, faith formation, um, character formation, worldview, all these kinds of things. And those things suddenly get harder to assess because you suddenly find that most of the assessment tools around you were designed to measure math scores um, or similar kinds of things. Um, so we're seeing schools pushed into extreme measures to try to deal with this. So I've seen schools in North America using a thing called the Willow Creek Reveal Survey, which came out of a large, out of a mega church in Chicago called Willow Creek. Now this is a tool that was designed for congregations to use to measure congregational participation. So it asks you things like how often you went to a prayer meeting in the last month and, uh, um, you know, this kind of stuff, which is, which is not a great fit for trying to figure out whether a Christian school is doing what it's supposed to be doing. But, uh, you know, we're seeing schools who, like, they can't find anything else, so they're spending thousands of dollars getting Willow Creek to come and do a slightly modified version of a tool that was designed for church congregations. So that started us thinking, like, if people are that desperate that they're just buying, they're spending large amounts of money on stuff that doesn't work then um, maybe it's time to try to build something different. Uh, and so what I want to do is talk a little bit about some of our background thinking, some of, the, some of the puzzles that we started trying to chew on and some of the answers we started drifting towards. I want to talk about how this, how this connects to ideas of vocation and then the approach that we're taking to try to build a different kind of tool for assessing whether a Christian school might be doing what it ought to be doing. So one of the things we started talking about was sustainability. We're seeing... Um, the problem of Christian schools, which are not always the wealthiest organizations to start with. Some of them are, uh, but uh, not all of them. Uh, like I said, paying $3,000, $4,000, $5,000 uh, 
to an organisation to come in and do a survey of the students uh, that supposedly assesses their faith formation or um, their degree of Christianness. Uh, and you pay you $5,000, the organisation comes in and does the survey, and you get one data slice. You get one set of results, usually for the students who just left. So it's not actually really that helpful for the ones that are still there. Uh, and then if you want to do it again next year and compare the numbers, you've got to pay another $5,000, um, and it mounts up pretty quickly. Um, we've seen with, uh, there have been some organizations that have attempted to do some larger scale national studies, like Cardus is an organization you might have heard of, that did a national study of alumni of Christian schools uh, based on surveys. Uh, but that cost a million and a half to put on and is only going to happen once a decade. So again, it's not a real promising strategy for sort of getting year-on-year -year data on what's happening in your school. So there's a sustainability problem. It seems like a lot of the tools we've got right now, they're economically structured the wrong way for schools to be able to use them often enough to make them worthwhile. Um, we also felt there was a problem with the kinds of feedback that were coming out of these tools and who was getting the feedback. So one problem with the feedback was, uh, I know from talking to Cardus folk, is there was sometimes the problem that they would come in and gather data, and then when they gave the data back to the school leadership, the school leadership didn't know what to do with it, uh, because school leaders are not necessarily highly trained in reading data tables and trying to get to policy changes from data tables. So there's this sort of, how do you, how do you actually get meaningful information out of, a, out of an empirical assessment that people can act upon? But perhaps a bigger concern for us was that by and large in the tools that we saw, the students got no feedback at all. That what tended to happen was the students were all herded into the school gym and told to answer a bunch of questions for half an hour, and then that was the end of the process for them. Um, and then this all got sent away, and what was returned to the school went back to the school leaders or maybe the school board, but there wasn't a feedback loop for the students, so this wasn't serving a learning purpose. And we wanted to think, well, if we... <laughs> You know, assessment is not just summative assessment, right? Assessment should be formative. Uh, so if we're actually going to try to think about this, maybe we should actually involve students in the process and get students thinking about how they're growing in Christian school and whether it's working and how they ought to be changing and whether they might want to change in a different way. So we started thinking about how can we design a tool that engages students much more directly than a lot of the ones that we're seeing out there. Um, there was also a problem with this, with this matter of formation because what we really wanted to get at is this the Christian school doing Christian formation? Um, and I mean, that partly means you're gonna, have to, you're gonna have to do this tool often enough to see whether things are changing. So a snapshot at the end is not necessarily telling you this. You need a baseline and an outcome to see change. But it also might mean that we're looking at broader things than whether students go to prayer meetings. Um, if we're actually interested in the student's whole formation, we also wanna know more than do they believe the right things. So this related to further questions, um, so I'll come to that slide in a second, around how faith fits into this. So I want to try and, try and dance around that for a few minutes. So in terms of the formation thing, how does formation take place in school? Right? We've been talking about this already this morning. Formation takes place through the practices that we design in classrooms. Uh, chapel talks contribute. But a lot of the formation that takes place in school take, takes place through the design of pedagogical practices. So if you want to measure formation, you need to know what those pedagogical practices are doing. Now, here's an example. I got, I got, I got an email from a student of mine who was a student at Calvin University, and uh, he went on to a grad school to study theology. And he sent me this email in his first semester. He said, in a class on Anglo-American post-modernity, I've been frustrated by how assignments are designed. 
We recently received our first paperback and I was surprised and somewhat amused to find that almost all of the best students, that is those who have taken the most interest in the material, who have asked the most insightful questions and whom I would just generally like to sit down and have a long talk with about the material, got rather crummy grades. Of about five of the students I've talked to, all students who I see as brighter than myself and who I'd like to have look over my work, only one did well while several did miserably. After talking with different people, I've come to suspect the reason is these students were not content to simply regurgitate information. We realized that what the professor and teaching assistant want is basically a boatload of citations to answer the relatively simple questions. I've been somewhat amused by the result of this because it's made the last first and the first last. Normally C students got mostly A's, while the normally A students got C's. But it's also frustrating because the path of least resistance to an A is intellectual mediocrity. We all laughed at ourselves because we spent hours on a paper that was really an easy A to get B's and C's. <laughs> what this does, however, is incentivize acquiescence and intellectual apathy. I've run into this now in a few classes, and I'm beginning to worry that I will not survive seminary with a shred of intellectual rigor left in me. This is formation, right? Um, and this is a student commenting on their own formation. They're saying, I'm having repeated experiences in my classes where it's pretty clear that what the teacher wants is conformity, is for me to quote the right paragraphs back, to mention the three points that the professor put in his lecture, and that if I do that, I'll pass. And what that's providing is a disincentive to think. And it's starting to create this tension so that I'm starting to worry that studying theology and being a person who thinks might not be compatible with each other, that I might not be able to get through seminary with a shred of intellectual rigor left. Now, this is formation but it's the kind of formation that is not gonna show up on a lot of the tools that I've seen that try to assess faith. Because it's not about whether the student believes the right thing about Jesus. And it's not about whether they went to a prayer meeting in the last month. It's about the formative processes that are going on through their learning. And we somehow need to get at that. So this brings me back to the faith question. And again, it's been very striking to me working with students in a research context, the study I mentioned this morning, uh, the digital technology study, we've spent several years doing, doing focus groups, not only with teachers and parents, but with students. And it's just absolutely fascinating spend hours and, spending hours and hours sitting talking with Christian high school students without their teachers present and finding out how they understand their learning. And um, here's something that's totally unconnected to today's talk, but just an encouragement for you. One of the things that has struck me most out of spending hours in focus groups with high school students is how much they are listening to their teachers. Over and over again, they were quoting their teachers to us. Even when they knew they weren't doing what their teachers were asking them to do, it wasn't because they weren't listening, it was because they were failing. And you're all failing at something you aspire to as well. Right? Um, so when the students don't look like they're perfect models of what you're telling them, it's not because they're not hearing you. Right? It's just because they haven't perfected their life yet, and you haven't either. Uh, but we just heard evidence after evidence that the students were just very invested in what their teachers were telling them. Um, but that's an aside. As we talked to students in focus groups, we asked them, can you give us examples of how the school has shaped your faith and how that's been worked out in your life outside the school? So what difference has it made learning in a Christian environment? Give me examples of the fruit of being a Christian student. And... They told us stories like um, the one that I told this morning. Uh, you remember the student that decided that it felt too selfish to have everybody serving him all the time, so he decided he was going to try to get to know the janitors. He was going to try to get to know the dining services staff. He was going to try to get to know the grounds crew and see if he could pray for them and serve them. 
I talked to another group of students uh, at a school that was, was close to a beach, and uh, they said, well, we've been learning in school about creation care and our responsibility for the earth. And so we all got together on Saturday, and we weren't sure what we were going to do. And so we all decided to go down to the beach and pick up litter, tidy up the beach for people. Um, that was how we spent our Saturday. Um, it wasn't an assignment. Nobody would have known about it if they hadn't told me. But that was part of the fruit of, that was a, a direct connection they saw between what they learned in school and how they chose to spend their weekend. There was a student told us about how she got spring break coming up, and her family were taking a week down in California uh, for spring break vacation. And that she'd been online and had been researching nonprofits uh, in the area where they were going on vacation um, and emailing them to see if there were places she could serve uh, during the time she was down there on vacation. Another student talked to us about how they'd started to realize in class in school that when they sat towards the back of the class, they were easily distracted and were sometimes not listening to what the teacher was, was saying, and they were feeling like this was disrespectful and what they weren't, they weren't living up to who they wanted to be. So they deliberately decided to change where they sat in class and try to sit in the front row as a way of trying to discipline themselves to pay better attention in class. We kept hearing these kinds of examples, examples of students intentionally investing in their own formation. Right? Students intentionally and actively investing in their own formation. Now, another thing that struck me about these examples is that none of these four examples would have shown up on any of the tools that I've seen for assessing faith formation. Because I've seen tools that are very focused on trying to ask students whether they believe the right things, right? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Do you believe in the resurrection, right, etc.? And, you know, that's, that's worth knowing. Um, but none of these examples are actually about how they verbalize what they believe. They're about formation. They're about how they're making a connection between their faith and their actions. Like I said, I've seen other tools that focus on how many prayer meetings you've been to in the last month. Do you go to church? Do you read your Bible? These kind of sort of religious behaviors, inventories. Um, these are not going to show up there either, because it's not about going to prayer meetings. It's not about going to worship services. And I've seen other kinds of tools that are out there at the moment that are trying to focus on spirituality. So um, trying to fish for, like, have you experienced the presence of God any time in, in the last month? And, you know, how you relate to beauty or mystery or wonder or whatever. There's these kinds of tools around as well. Again, useful to know, but none of these examples are going to show up on this kind of tool. So we started realizing that there's just a lot of stuff going on in terms of students' Christian formation that was just invisible to the kind of tools that we were using to try to assess faith formation. And there was maybe other stuff we ought to be fishing for. This got us thinking about vocation. And if you are preparing a PowerPoint presentation and you search for images for vocation, you find out that the internet instantly translates it into vacation. Um, literally within like the first five pictures. But I uh, actually want to think about vocation rather than vacation. Um, again, in my part of the world, there's been quite a movement over the last five to eight years towards trying to get students to think more about vocation, about calling, trying to get students to think about the difference between a career and a vocation and what it means to think of your life in terms of being called. Um, and if you read stuff that's halfway good on vocation, it'll then quite quickly start pointing out that in terms of historic Christian thinking about vocation, that your Christian vocation is not your specific role or function, right? So your, your first Christian vocation is not to be a teacher 
or to be a minister or to be a missionary or to be a bricklayer or whatever. Your first Christian vocation is to be a Christian. Right? That's what you're called to. You are called to the imitation of Christ. And you work that out in some specific context where you happen to have found a fruit, fruitful things to do. Right? So there's also some theological resistance in the tradition to this quick collapsing of vocation into career, right? where what's your vocation becomes, well, are you going to be a teacher or a doctor? Actually, in a cosmic sense, it kind of doesn't matter whether you're going to be a teacher or a doctor. Your primary vocation is to become Christ-like. And you've got to work that out whether you're a teacher or a doctor. Now, there's then secondary vocation, which is you need to figure out where it's fruitful for you to be and what matches your gifts and, and the passions that God's given you and the needs that God's placed on your heart and all of that good stuff, right? But that's secondary vocation. Primary vocation is to be Christian and to figure out how to be Christian within the context of whichever human activity you find yourself in the midst of. Now, we've just, just the last three weeks, been doing a big literature survey, trying to find everything that's been written in the last 20 years on Christian vocation and education and students and so on. What we found was kind of interesting. Um, here's a couple of quotes about vocation from some recent articles. Uh, vocation, vocatio, is about being raised from the dead, being made alive to the reality that we do not merely exist, but we're called forth to a divine purpose. It's been said that every significant social relation constitutes a calling, including paid work, but also being a friend, aunt, uncle, child, parent, student, and more. All work is holy and commanded by God. And I throw up Charles Taylor, a secular age in there. He also talks about this change in the modern world um, to the modern sense of vocation, that it's just career. Uh, and that, that that's, that's a shift in the sense of the word. Now, I want to pull out this phrase here. Right? It's been said that every significant social relation constitutes a calling, including paid work, but also being a friend. There's a vocation to friendship, being an aunt, being an uncle, being a child, being a parent, being a student, and more. Now, here's a seed thought that started us going on this project. What if your student's calling right now while they're in school is to be a student? Right? It's not to be a future doctor right? or a future anything. Their calling right now is to be a student, and that's nested within the calling to be a Christian. So their calling is to be a Christian student. Simple thought, not rocket science, but let's play with it, see where it goes. Now, we found in the literature on vocation that there was lots of writing that was wrestling with this distinction I've just made between the notion of all of your life lived before God as your primary vocation and your specific occupation as your secondary vocation. Loads of people have written essays trying to remind us of that and dissuade us of the way we use the word these days and so on. Um, but what was interesting was that there was another division going on between present and future and that when people started talking about the vocation of students, they almost always talked about their future vocation. We just found this in book after book, article after article, that the same people who were very careful to make a distinction between, no, your vocation is to be Christian, your vocation is to live your life before God, and then within that there's your career, you turn the chapter and they start talking about students, and suddenly they're talking about how we prepare students for their vocation, like students are going to start having a vocation after they graduate. So there was an interesting corner of the grid here that people didn't seem to have paid a lot of attention to, which is what is the calling of a student right now, right? Before they graduate, before next semester, right this week, what's the calling of your students? What's their vocation as a Christian student? And do they think of themselves as having one? So this was just the matrix of, of kind of 
rumblings that led to the project that we designed. We were, tr we were trying to think about how to create something sustainable, how to give feedback to students and involve them in the process, get them thinking about being a Christian student as a vocation, relate to a broad conception of faith that isn't just prayer meetings, that isn't just believing the right thing, that isn't just having spiritual experiences, but is the whole of life. Um, and thinking about how formation happens in schools and not just talking about churchy behaviors, but thinking about the kind of thing that happens in classrooms. This is what we were trying to solve. Right? These are the elements of the puzzle. I'm not going to claim that we solved it, but here's what we're trying. Charles Taylor, in a secular age, he says, for actors, understanding a theory is being able to put it into practice in their world. They understand it through the practices which put it into effect. These practices have to make sense to them, the kind of sense which the theory prescribes. I spent an hour saying that this morning. Right? <laughs> um, he said it much more pithily. Right? So uh, the way to understand something is to practice it. If you haven't practiced it, you, you may, in a real sense, have not understood it. Um, you might not have understood the Eucharist if you've never actually drunk bread and eaten wine, um, or the other way around. So we have to think about practices. What kind of practices might make up the vocation of a Christian student? That's a big and complicated question. So at some point, if you're going to try and build a tool, you have to start shrinking it down and using some reference points to organize things. That inevitably means you start creating a more limited picture than reality because life is always more complex than what you get in a five-point scale. Um, but still, if you want to build a tool, you've got to simplify down a little bit. So we started thinking in terms of Christian practices for a student involving relational practices. So I was struck when I first moved to Michigan. I'd never taught in a Christian college before. Uh, I'd always taught in public secondary schools. And um, I just kind of got the impression that for a lot of students, coming to class meant I'm here for my learning. The teacher's going to give me my learning and my grade. And whether the person to my left or to my right passes or fails is none of my business. That's the teacher's job. In fact, my first semester at Calvin, about eight weeks into the semester, I had a pile of quizzes to hand back, and I gave them to one of my students to help me hand them out. And it became pretty clear within a few moments that the student had no idea what the names were of half the other people in the classroom. We'd been learning together for nine weeks. I'd been calling on people by name. And the other people had been invisible to the student. And so out of that class, one of those students asked me to mentor him. And so we met together the following semester. And so one day, we were sitting over coffee, and I was just venting to him a little bit. And uh, my rant went along the lines of, I've never taught in a Christian college before. And I get this feeling that it's all about me and my learning, me and my grade, that I'm not responsible for the people around me. How can that be Christian? What about, am I my brother's keeper? Encourage one another as long as it's called today. Rebuke one another. You're part of the body, the eye cannot say to the ear, etc., etc., etc. What stayed with me out of that conversation was this particular student was, I think, one of the most painfully Christian students I've met. Um, he was just desperate to serve the Lord. Like, he, just, he, just, he was telling me stories about you know, just praying face down in his dorm room and just crying out and God to call him to Uzbekistan as a missionary. And he, just, he was just all in and wanted to do the whole thing. Right? And uh, so what stayed with me out of this conversation was that for this student, he had been through Christian elementary school Christian middle school, Christian secondary school, two years at Wheaton College, Christian College in Chicago, transferred two years at Calvin College. He'd done 17 years of Christian education, and the idea that part of his Christian discipleship might be looking after the needs of the person sitting next to him in class was a brand new and exciting thought to him. 
I'm thinking, how do you get through 17 years of Christian education and not realize you're responsible for the people around you? Well, it helps if you all sit in individual chairs in straight rows. It helps if you're only ever given individual grades and you're told that it's cheating to work with other people. It helps if there are no consequences to your learning if the person next to you fails. It helps if the whole thing's construed competitively and it's all about who gets the best exam scores and who gets into the best university. So is part of the, might part of the practices that are part of the vocation of a Christian student be being attentive to the people around you and what their needs are. So that if somebody else comes to class this morning distressed, if somebody else failed the last quiz, you notice and you take some responsibility for that. What kind of education might nurture that? How could we help students grow into that simple Christian practice? And we found as we started, we've, we've been talking about this for a number of years, we put together a whole study group where we actually invited students to be part of this. Um, we met together for a year with a group of four students, four teachers, four student life professionals, um, and, uh, and four college professors, and just read lots of stuff about vocation and practices and so on. And we found that for some students, this was really their, this was their gift. They knew who was upset in their dorm, um, and uh, they were quite sensitive to the relational matrix around them. So this is one area of practices. A second area, of course, is intellectual practices, truth-seeking. We found some students that were just very invested in this, that outside of what their teachers were assigning them, they were seeking out Christian books that could help them think about what they were learning. That's a real simple, useful Christian practice, right? Go look for books that will help you understand how to be a Christian. It's uh, figure out who to intellectually mentor yourself to. Right? Who's the Christian thinker that you're gonna read a few things by and try and figure out how they think so that you can learn how to think. Um, these are practices, have you, have you ever, when you're doing your homework, opened your Bible and tried to figure out how what the teacher just taught you about relates to what it says there? Are you trying to make the connections? Are you trying to do the truth thing? There's a set of practices around this that I think are also part of the practices of the calling to be a Christian student. You have to try and figure out what's true. You have to learn discernment. You have to learn how, how to disciple your mind, and you need the help of other people to do that. It's not going to happen accidentally. You have to choose to read a book. Right? You have to choose to come to a conference. Um, it takes investment. So there's a set of intentional practices around that. Third, there are introspective practices. Um, so <clears throat> an example of that would be the student I mentioned earlier who realizes that she's being dis disrespectful to her teachers because she doesn't listen well when she's sitting at the back of the room. This is a question of sitting down and taking stock and saying, who am I right now and how am I doing? Right? What, what's actually happening in my heart as I learn? Uh, now, here's another example of this that goes way back into the Christian tradition, if you go all the way back to the early church. For Augustine, uh, like for other church fathers, knowledge, intellectual understanding, it's an appetite like other appetites. So if you think about ones that we're more familiar with, right, how Christians since the start of the church have thought about hunger, right? It's a creational appetite. It's a normal part of being a physical creature that you experience hunger. That's a good thing. It's not a, single, it's not a sinful thing. And there's a joy in taking food with other people. It's a source of fellowship, etc. But you're fallen. So there's this twisted version of the same appetite that turns into lust, where you start wanting things that aren't yours, where it starts breaking 
the bounds with it, with it which is meant to be contained, it becomes immeasurable, it becomes distorted, it becomes self-absorbed, it becomes about power and violence and dominance. And suddenly it's sometimes not so easy to tell these two apart, but there's two versions of the appetite for food. Um, sorry, I started with food and I ended in sex there. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's jet lag. Um, wrong thread there. So imagine I did two things there, right? Um, so there's food, there's hunger, food, fellowship, and then there's, there's gluttony, right? Um, there's, there's eating too much, there's eating food that belongs to other people, there's stuffing yourself while poor people are just, just down the road aren't eating at all, um, and so on, right? There's good desire for sex, and there's lust. So all of these come in two varieties. Uh, well, the church fathers think about the appetite for knowledge in exactly the same way, right? There are two versions of the appetite for knowledge. Uh, there's what Augustine calls studiositas, which is the good kind. Studiosity would be the loose English translation. And curiositas, which is the bad kind, which in English would come out as curiosity, although it doesn't mean the same as the way we use the word. So what's the good kind of knowledge and the bad kind of knowledge? Well, the bad kind of knowledge is when you want to learn lots of things just so that other people think you're really smart. When what you're really interested in is your reputation. What you're really interested in is showing off being the first person with the right answer, getting to the top of the heap. Curiositas is when you want to know things just for the sake of success, just for the sake of beating out other people. It's when you want to know things and hug them to yourself and copyright them and patent them so that other people can't share them. You take some part of God's world and you make it yours and not other people's. That's curiosity for Augustine. Studiosity you might be trying just as hard to learn things, so that it's not, this is not about the intensity of your desire to know, right? But you want to know things so that you can serve the community. You want to know things so that you can help the people around you. You want to share things with people around you in ways that help them in their calling and their service. And you want to share freely. Anything you've learned, you give away, because other people might need it to live their life well. How would you know which one you're doing right now? Um, I mean, this process I have to go through every time I publish an article, right? Where do I want to publish it and why? Right? Which specific group of people might I be helping by publishing it here? Am I starting to get too interested in this journal has a better reputation than that journal and I'll get a bigger audience or I'll get more brownie points or whatever? So this is an introspective practice, right? It's paying attention as you learn to your own heart and trying to figure out what motives are driving your learning. Are you in this for you? Or are you in this for God and the community? And that is a real subtle distinction on a given day. <laughs> it takes a bit of soul searching to start to try to figure out the pathways of what's motivating your desire to know the answer. Um, so introspective practices are part of what the Christian tradition has said, a part of being a Christian student. What we, we ended up calling benevolent practices, I mean, this is the trying to do good stuff for people practices. Service learning, certain kinds of mission trips. Um, this is the one where you just ask yourself, have you ever sat down and taken something you learned in school and applied it to the needs of somebody outside of school? Um, have you ever learned about creation care in school and gone to clean, clean up the beach on Saturday as a result? Because right? that's what ought to happen. <laughs> that's a Christian learning practice, taking what you're learning and figuring out how you can apply it to the needs of people around you, figuring out how you can help better as a result of being better educated, 
figuring out that learning is something that makes you better at serving and that you can take it and you can do stuff that you couldn't do before. Figuring out that learning to read means you can now read for the blind person down the road. Um, whatever it is, whatever you're learning. Right? Figuring out that learning nutrition means you can now cook for other people. And finally, formational practices. This is a sort of a category, again, for this intentional investment in trying to become someone other than what you are now. So this is tied in with all the others. But it's these moments when the student realizes I'm not who I want to be right now, and I want to be this other person, and this is my plan for getting there. So in a sense, you know, the student who decided to sit near the front of the classroom is also engaging in this formational kind of move. They're saying, I want to grow into a different person than the one I am now and I'm going to make a deliberate move to try to get there. Um, now, this is the, the faith formation equivalent of going to the gym, right? You know, you'd like your body to be a slightly different shape than it is right now. That means time on the treadmill. Right? So um, it's the same principle, right? You want to grow in this virtue. You want to grow in this aspect of faith. So you deliberately invest in these other practices as a way of shaping yourself. So this is kind of our loose roadmap of what it might look like to describe the vocation of a Christian student. This is what you're called to if you're studying. By the way, this applies to you if you're a grad student right now. Um, this is the calling of the student. Now, one advantage of this map is that nobody's doing all of this. Right? This is like the, if you were Jesus, um, you'd be pulling all of this off. But you aren't, so you're not. So we started thinking, what if you could actually assess the degree to which students were invested in this range of practices? Instead of trying to assess that they're 73% humble, try to assess the degree to which they're investing in their own formation through the Christian practices of being a student. So you can start asking questions like, how many times in the last month have you taken something you learned in school and applied it to a need in your community? Right? How many times in the last month have you noticed someone else in your classroom environment who was struggling and done something about it, even if it's just an encouraging word. Right? How many times in the last month have you intentionally tried to access resources to help you think through the truth of something in light of your faith? So instead of trying to assess these mysterious inside things like how, how humble are you now, or how much do you trust in Jesus, or are you really saved, maybe a thing that we could measure would be the degree to which students were actively investing in the practices that related to the vocation of being a Christian student. And that that might be an indirect reflection of how well the Christian school was doing at helping students to understand what the vocation of a Christian student might be. So my secret agenda behind all of this is to try to put pressure back on teachers <laughs> to teach in a way that this makes sense. Um, but I also want feedback for students. Now imagine if you took that kind of map and you did what we did, you hired a psychometric person from Harvard, and you, you said, take this and turn it into numbery things. This is outside my specialty, as you can tell from the technical language. And, uh, and so we've just spent a year working with a team of social scientists, um, trying to turn this into you know, 50 questions that you can ask that overlap with each other in all kinds of interesting ways and so on. We've just tested this with 2,000 students in schools around North America and developed a data set out of that. 
and we've been validating that data set this summer to determine statistically whether the questions do really seem to be assessing what they claim to be assessing. And the tentative conclusion as of last Tuesday was that the tool that we have does seem to be assessing something. Um, <laughs> and that that something does seem to be quite similar to what we said we were looking for. So we're quite encouraged at the moment that we've got some evidence that, that the tool we designed does seem to be getting stable data that's, that's related to the original questions that we were asking. Now imagine then that we could set up a system where a school signs up for this. Um, maybe there's a per-student fee. Maybe a student pays $20 to take the online test or something because something's got to fund the website. And the student answers 30, 40 questions that explore these different areas of Christian practice. And then the first thing that happens is the student gets feedback. Um, there's a big part of me that almost doesn't care about the rest of this slide. Uh, so what happens next is you get a printout back that says, congratulations, you've prayed six times in the last month. This is really good. But it looks like you haven't thought very much about how being Christian relates to justice issues in your community. Maybe Here's some links or some things you could go explore to go explore that a little bit more, and your teacher will talk to you about this in class. Or for another student, congratulations, young social justice warrior. Looks like you're totally engaged with the deep hurts of your community. Might want to think about praying every now and then. Um, and I actually suspect that given that only Jesus is doing all of these practices, that it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to come out with a waveform, right? <laughs> you're going to be doing some bits of this, and you're not going to be doing some bits of this. And this means it doesn't matter which student you are, you're going to get some feedback that contains both affirmation and a pathway to growth. That's why I said earlier that I like, that I like about this that nobody's doing all of it, because it gives us that. Also, from what I've seen from some of the big million and a half dollar surveys, for instance, one of the things we learned from the Cardus survey is that if you're a graduate of a Catholic Christian school, you are much more likely to be engaged with political and social concerns than if you come from a Protestant Christian school. If you come from a Protestant Christian school, you're much more likely to have been on a mission trip, and you're likely to be giving more money to your church, and you're more likely to have a stable marriage, statistically, than if you go to other kinds of school. Um, so when we've looked at the profiles of Christian schools out of different Christian traditions, we see these different profiles with different bits of the Christian tradition popping up right, and, and showing forth. And so I'm hoping that's going to be reflected in this, that, that you know, a Catholic student, a fundamentalist evangelical student, a um, liberal Protestant student, I, I don't mind. I think they're all going to find something and they're all going to find the stuff they just hadn't thought about yet. So that's what I'm after. So that goes back to the student. And I will rejoice if the student simply reads that feedback, thinks for a little while about how am I being a Christian student, how am I not being a Christian student, and maybe has a few thoughts about how to grow. Um, I hope the school can then help them with that, and we're also starting to design some learning materials around this so that you can use this maybe in a class and follow up on it afterwards. But then also, imagine if anonymously all of the students' aggregated scores go to the school administration. It's got to be anonymous because I don't want the students pretending to be Christian for the sake of adults on the survey. Right. Uh, so, but all the, so all the school gets is an anonymous aggregate. Now it might be useful to the school to know that only 17% of your students have opened the Bible in the last month while doing their homework. Right. Or have sought out a service opportunity. And I'm hoping that the school might learn 
again, a kind of map of strengths and weaknesses. Like, here's the stuff that you're succeeding at getting across to your students. You know, you're, you're a service learning school, right? All of your students are out serving the community. But theology, ah, not so much. Um, or the other way around, or some other combination. Right? You might get a kind of a heat map, and you might get some clue of the things you might want to invest in. Now, if we can succeed, this is an if, right, because we're still working on this. If we can succeed in keeping the costs down, if you could do this with your freshmen and your seniors, um, you might actually get a rolling body of data so that you could, take, you could do a freshman survey, you could find out what they think Christian learning is, you could then decide how you're going to invest as a school in moving the needle, and then have them take the assessment again in three years' time and see if you move the needle, see if you're getting a different heat map in terms of where students see the relationship between their faith and their learning practices. Maybe, we're not sure about this yet, this, this might come down the road, we might build in the option um, of uh, schools sharing that data with a research team so that we can actually build up a national body of, or an international body of data, so we actually have a rich body of research data on how Christian students in Christian schools are thinking about their learning, that we might be able to feed into developing resources and so on. That's not necessary to the model right now, but we might go there. And then maybe that research, those research findings feed back into how we're thinking about how students learn when we come to iTech conferences. Um, so this is what we're trying to build. So timeline, um, in fall 2018, uh, we've, uh, we went through a development phase on this. Like I said, we hired social scientists, econometrists, and so on. And we, we put together a working model. Uh, we trialed it this spring, 2,000 students in a whole bunch of different kinds of schools around, around North America got the data, crunched the numbers. 2019-20 is an early adopter phase. We're recruiting 10 schools uh, to buy in to be our first cohort of schools so that we can do a kind of beta run um, and do another round of data validation uh, so that we are really sure by the time it goes big that, that the numbers mean what we say they mean. Um, and uh, and so also so, so that we can learn things about whether there are questions that don't work with some student populations or um, this kind of thing. So we're hoping to run this with about 10 schools in 2019-2020 who we're also hoping, it's not just hope, we have some schools on board, are going to pay us a fee to do that so we can continue to fund the next phase of the project. And, uh, and then by the start of 2020, uh, by the 2020-21 academic year, we want to have a, um, a full access version online that schools will be able to sign up uh, to use with students. Uh, we still haven't completely worked out exactly what the economic model is going to be. We're still thinking about sustainability. Obviously, it costs something to keep running a website that doesn't crash halfway through the, um, halfway through the, uh, the survey um, and to run the back end and all the rest of it. So, but we're trying to figure that out so that the fees to schools will be modest enough that they can use, them, use it frequently. So that's what we've been trying to build. Um, and it's another reason, I think, why the conversation at this conference around practices is actually quite important, because can we get actually intentional and articulate enough about our practices that we might know when students are engaging them? Um, or are we just kind of hoping that something nice happens because we're Christians and lovely people? So I'm going to stop there for the moment. Um, turn to the person next to you and tell them what you're thinking right now. Because usually when you ask for questions, there's an awful silence for two minutes. So let's prime the pump.
Okay. Questions? Um, yeah. Right now we're targeting um, high school in American terms, which is like 14 through 18. Um, we think that this might work down into middle school and up into first, first couple of years college, but we haven't built that yet. Um, so to some degree that's going to depend on whether the current version proves sustainable and takes off. I mean, one possible future is still that this crashes and burns ignominiously and uh, we are looking for another project. Um, but if it, if it gets broadly used and generates a stable income base, then we'll start looking and seeing if we can extend that. We have not yet started trying to imagine how to do this in primary. Um, it's essentially a survey right now. Yep. Sorry. We yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of implementing it in teaching, we, we hope that this, again, provides a framework to help teachers think about doing this with students. Um, what we're providing is the tool for putting some numbers on whether it's happening um, that you can then boast to parents about or give to accreditors or uh, all the things that you need numbers for. So, um, yeah, you were next. Part of our school's mission is ultimately to set up our kids so that they can continue to serve God for his glory yep. going forward. Is there a longitudinal process behind this that we could potentially survey alumni to know down the track whether or not our school is actually accomplishing what it set it out to do? Yeah. And in five, ten years time, yep. we're actually yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I, mean, I think um, it ought to be possible. It's not baked into the first iteration, uh, but I don't see why you couldn't. I mean, if you've got the capacity to contact your alumni, you know, and ask them all to go take the survey again, it, it might take us designing a set of survey questions that are tweaked for the new context. Because if the questions are framed in terms of a school environment, obviously that needs to change a little bit for the alumni. Um, I certainly don't see a major structural reason why that couldn't become a feature of this. That's, that's a fairly carefully phrased sentence that doesn't promise too much. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, right now we're just trying to get the first iteration up and running for schools, but I think that could be a useful extension of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. That's exactly why we've just done a 2,000 student pilot and why we're doing 10 schools for another year next year before we release the final <laughs> version. We've been, we've been trialing differently worded versions of the same question, comparing the kind of answers that get given to different versions of the same question. It's also part of the, the validation is built so that you, you ask about the same thing multiple different ways and see if there are consistent patterns in how students answer. Because if students answer differently depending on how you ask the question, then it's not a stable tool. So that's, all, that's what the validation process is all about, is trying to make sure that when a student answers, they are asking the question, they're answering the question we intended and it's a stable result. So, yeah. Um, somebody, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, any survey is vulnerable to things like um, you know the desire for social approval. So you know, a lot of, we all when we take sur take surveys tend to try to appear more virtuous than we actually are. 
so that's an inherent weakness with survey-based tools. Um, what we are trying to do is to be very explicit to students up front that this is not a, this is not a test that you try to pass, right? Uh, you know, the goal here is not to get a great score. The goal is to try to learn about yourself um, and that the only person who's ever going to see your, your answers is you. Uh, and so we're trying to be very explicit about that as a way of encouraging students to... Now, I mean, that's, that's not a cast-iron guarantee. Um, and surveys at the end of the day are a fallible tool for trying to get a glimpse of what might be going on um, that then gets turned into numbers and looks much more official. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that, that's what we're trying to communicate to students around that. Yeah. Yes, we have. Um, we have not had the time or the money to build it in this, this iteration, uh, but we'd love to have a second version of this that teachers take that basically ask the same things for the students, but in terms of how many times in the last month you as a teacher have engaged in teaching behaviors that might have encouraged this behavior in your students. Um, and I think it would actually be quite interesting to compare, because one of the things we found in the technology study, actually, was that there were quite a number of things that the teachers rated themselves quite low on how well they were doing them, and the students rated them much more highly. It was the, the teachers were actually a little too pessimistic about their own performance um, in terms of, you know, they said, well, I, I don't do this very often, I don't do this well, and the students are saying, oh, yeah, my teachers helped me with this, and, and so on. So it might actually be quite encouraging to make that comparison, uh, but it might also show where there's some mismatches, where you think you're doing lots of this, but the students aren't picking that up. So, so yeah, there's... there's 20 variations of this that it would be lovely to build down the road. We're, we're sort of all out building the core first one right now, so yeah. It's actually quite a, quite a, you know, a large scale and expensive operation to build one properly and validate it and so on. I mean, we've, we've spent about, just to put this in perspective, we've sent a, spent about $175,000 and about four years work to get the first iteration. So it's not quite as easy as just sitting down and dashing off a teacher version. Um, that's not an excuse, it's just a, just it takes time and investment to, uh, to get something that's actually worth doing because it works, so, yeah. Yeah. You know, think about a student who's just participated in an overseas mission trip or service trip, yep. who's an about atheist, how do you measure faith in the person? Right. So there are some questions in here specifically about faith behaviours because that's part of it, right? You know, the do you pray, do you read your Bible, you know, that is part of it. Um, but I also think there's some things in here that might be interesting ways to think about, right? If you've got students in your school that are not Christian and they're getting a Christian education, I hope they're still benefiting from that education, right? Um, now, there might, might be bits that are missing, um, but I hope that doesn't mean that nothing's happening, right? So we'll see. I mean, I, I, I hope that there's actually, that there's both enough kind of formally Christian things in here that you know, you're not going to answer yes to everything unless you're a Christian. Um, and I also hope that there's enough stuff in here that's about investment in practices that students who are in a variety of places might find places to see themselves reflected back um, in terms of their own investments as learners. Right. And changes people. And so to me, it's the, the, 
Like, yeah. Yeah, um, let me flip this around. Given that the Holy Spirit works and changes people, do we want to take all the ways in which we want students to change and wave our hands and say it's the Holy Spirit um, and then not take responsibility for how we shape those processes? Now, there's some theology in here because um, I think that Christian theology teaches that the Holy Spirit works in and through natural processes, not just through di direct divine intervention. So, um, I think we can measure some things that might be connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I mean, to take a really simple example, if Billy Graham comes to town and does a crusade and tells you afterwards that 300 people made decisions of faith, he's measuring the work of the Holy Spirit, right? It, like, he didn't make that happen, um, but he can count some of the results. Uh, so, I do think there's a space in there where if we're careful, we can get some data on whether certain kinds of things are happening. That doesn't mean we're claiming that we made them all happen without God's help or without the Holy Spirit's intervention and so on, right? There's, there's still a mystery in here. And that's partly why I wanted to get away from trying to directly measure students' inner spiritual life and look more at this indirect evidence of the degree to which they're investing in certain practices because that seems more directly connected to the work of teachers. Teachers can help them invest in those practices. Teachers can't directly make them humble or faithful or whatever, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm, in some ways I'm trying to get more towards the periphery here and think about what things we can measure and what things are still part of the mystery. So, yeah.